Martin and I are friends who have been talking about recording this podcast episode for nearly a year. Except when we first discussed it, he was in prison serving the last stretch of a 17-year sentence. I met Martin Lockett over three years ago for a book I was working on that features the voices of people in prisons across the nation. And I developed relationships with everyone in the book, but when I would do a book reading after the book was published, I would always say that it was Martin who had my heart. For the past three years, we've exchanged letters and book recommendations and even some video visits. Martin has been home in Oregon for about a month now, and he's a quick text learner, so he's been sending me photos of him on his newfound adventures, his first outside prison, exploring freedom with his fiance and friends and family. Martin's a sought-after speaker, and it's clear from this episode, so I'm going to save all the good stuff for the conversation. Before we dive in, here's a little about Martin. Martin Lockett is a writer and speaker whose words have impacted thousands of people even before leaving prison. He served almost 18 years for manslaughter caused by an accident one New Year's Eve in 2003 where he drank excessively and drove through a stoplight, colliding with a car carrying three people. Upon learning that the two people who died that night were volunteers in the drug and alcohol recovery community, Martin chose to honor them by dedicating his life to helping others through addiction counseling and drinking and driving prevention. Martin has made the most of his incarceration by striving to achieve an education and to become a counselor. His list of educational accomplishments includes earning his high school GED, graduating from Indiana University with an Associate of Arts, graduating from Colorado State University Pueblo with a Bachelor of Science in Sociology with Honors, graduating from California Coast University with a Master of Science in Psychology with Honors. He interned and earned state certification as a substance abuse counselor. While in prison, he worked in the educational programs for those who were incarcerated where he moderated DUI victim impact panels and he shared his own story, recording videos about that night of the crash. He mentored and trained others who were incarcerated to become mentors for addiction recovery and tutored others who were inside with him through the GED curriculum. Martin has published two books, his memoir, Palpable Irony, and a book called My Prison Life, a collection of essays. He's published hundreds of blog posts and has been published in The Oregonian, and I have a feeling that there is much more to come. All right, let's get to it. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws, to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asti, and I'm curious, aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast brings the unfamiliar closer. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. 
I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Okay, let's get to it. I'm so excited to do this with you. So, all right, we're recording on July 25th, and you've been home from prison for about a month. And the first, like when you got out that first day, I got a selfie from you. And it was, I must say, you look pretty cool. I think you had like a red shirt on, you got like shades, you were sitting in the car, it's very cool look. And since then, I love that lots of days you'll send me photos of what you're doing out at the coast with friends, with your partner. And you, I must say, you've, you have some pretty good style. So I've seen like some, like a yellow polo, you really pop in yellow, some boat shoes. So I think the first question, the obviously most important things first, tell me how it feels to like dress in your own style in non-prison issued clothing. Yeah, so that, that was really my first um, kind of experience with freedom, if you will. So your loved ones, they bring your clothes, your dress out clothes uh, to the prison uh, that morning. And then you, you know, you call down to this section of the prison to swap out your prison issue clothes and you put on your uh, civilian clothing and then they walk you up the, you know, the way out. But as I was putting on you know, those those white jean shorts and the red shirt and the red socks and the red shoes. I was like, I'm putting on freedom one piece of clothing at a time, you know, and it just it just felt it was like I was literally taking this prisoner of 17 and a half years and leaving him in that room that I changed in. And I was putting on Martin again. Mm. You know what I mean? And so there was a lot of a lot of emotion as I was doing that, a lot of just cathartic relief to be honest with you and um and I've always you know kind of like to look nice so it just felt really good to be able to put on some clothes that I, I could look in the mirror and say okay I got myself back now you know mm. so it's been wonderful doing a lot of shopping and just wanting to go with any color but blue pretty much yeah. So, You've had enough blue in your life. <laughs> I've had enough blue in my life. Well, I, I've gotten a few blue items, but they're they're sufficiently different from the blue jeans and blue t-shirts that I that I wore for uh, almost twenty years. So it's 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 exciting and it's really gratifying to be able to pick out what I want to wear for the day and put it on and take a couple pictures and send them to you. So. Yeah, I, I feel that like this emergence of who you are, like you're putting yourself back on and just this freedom and you've got style, man. Like <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Some people, some people say, oh man, like how does this dude come out, you know, dressing better than us? You know, he was away for 17 <laughs> years and it was funny because my niece, you know, she's 29 and I was telling her before I got out, you know, I wanted to go shopping at this place and that place. And she was like, yeah. I think I think you should bring me with you because um, you know you you've been away for a while. So and I'm like, what you don't you don't trust my style? Like I've always had style, you know. At least I thought so. Like yeah, I don't know. You've been away for a while. Like people don't wear baggy pants and you know baggy t-shirts. And I'm like, I understand that. I do see TV. I see what people are wearing. So like, just trust me a little bit. So when she saw me, she was like, she was checking me out, looking me up and down, and she was like. Okay, I see you got the matching socks. Okay, you got. You know, she said, "Okay, you're you're good. I can I can kind of back off now." So, that was <laughs> okay, fun. good. I'm glad she approved. That's important. She approves. Yes, indeed. 
the other thing I wanted to know is in this past month, has there been like maybe a funny moment where you sort of realize I'm not in prison anymore. This is not prison. Like this is a totally different world. Um, yeah, well, it, it, it wasn't really, uh, you know, necessarily funny, but just, um, you know, just, just going to the stores and, you know, it's like every time you buy something, they're asking you for your social security number. And I was reluctant to give it. I'm thinking like, wait, you work at Macy's. Why do you need my social security number? Like that's very sacred. Oh, you're probably signing up for like a credit card for Macy's. I think, or... I think it, yeah. was, it, was, yeah, it was something like that. And yeah, it was just, so it was kind of, kind of a shock, but I, it's, it's, it's to be expected, right? Everybody's expected to give this very, you know, sensitive information. And so, um, I honestly, Ashley, like every day, and it's been a month, but every day is still a wow factor to me because every experience is new. Like I just had lobster for the first time a week ago, first time in my life, never had lobster and I'm eating it. And I'm just like, wow, like this is lobster. I'm eating lobster. Cause I could have never gotten that inside or, you know, going to the beach and letting the water run over my feet. And, you know, it had been so many years since I had experienced that. And I'm like, even though it wasn't the best day at the beach, it was kind of gloomy and, you know, foggy and very, very, very windy. And most people were probably, you know, lamenting the fact that they had to go to beach on, go to the beach on a day like that. But to me, it was like the greatest day ever because I'm at the beach. And so every single day is just, um, it's like a renewed wow factor for me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just really soaking it in and I'm just really loving it. I really am. Uh, yeah, I love to get when I get the photos and get to sort of experience the world through that vision and that gratitude. You seem to have tremendous gratitude. And I know you want to try to capture that or hold on to that as much as possible. Um, I'm going to take it back a few years now because you and I have been friends for like a little over three years. And mm -hmm. I remember I had reached out to you. I sent you a letter asking you to fill out this questionnaire for a book that I was working on. Um, and I was asking if you'd be willing to share your voice. And I remember my original intention for the book was to ask all these, these questions of people who are currently incarcerated and receive the questionnaires and say thank you and sort of move on. But I remember receiving your answers and I, it was the first time that I was like, oh, I, I don't wanna stop writing to him. I just had this feeling of like, oh, he, he's like interesting. I wanna get to know him. Do you, do you remember that moment? Do you remember when we first started connecting? I do. Yeah, I do. And um, and just the fact that I remember after that, that first um, exchange of letters and then the one I had gotten back from you, you were saying because you had asked me kind of, you know, so many questions about myself, then you invited me to ask questions about you. You said, well, I don't think it's fair that I was able to ask you about all these, you know, aspects of your life and your prison experience and things like that without being willing to also, you know, reciprocate. And that to me, that was a, it was just a warm feeling. It was just a genuine, like a human connection, um, you know, sense that I got there that like, okay, yes, yeah, she's this professional woman who's looking to write this book and, you know, really provide some insight, um, you know, to the public about prison life, but like, she's also like a human being and she also, you know, just wants to connect on a human level. So that, that really, uh, you know, resonated with me, if you will, and, and, you know, made me want to, you know, open up and uh, feel comfortable asking you questions and getting to know you as a person, right? So. Yeah, I think I'm, I remember saying something like, 
Well, you've shown me yours, so. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. I think it's that's exactly fair. how you said it, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Um, and we will, I want to like move into your life and your story, but I, I feel like I have to mention one of my favorite moments while you're still inside, like we, now I feel like our relationship has gotten to expand and it's going to get to grow in new ways is when we would do what we'd call sort of book clubs where we would both read the same book and afterwards we'd write letters about it or have a phone call or a video visit about it. And I remember, because I still go back to this and it probably wasn't as impactful for you in the same way because we read uh, a play by or novel by James Baldwin, um, If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. And from what I remember of the novel, there's like a 19 year old girl, who, like a love story and her partner, her boyfriend uh, ends up getting like wrongfully convicted and incarcerated and she finds out she's pregnant and and this this love story but also all this struggle around it and I remember reading that book and just feeling I so much wanted to connect to this woman this girl this main character and and finding it almost exhausting or hard like her I just couldn't fully envelop it I remember hearing from you for the first time about it and you're like, oh, this feels like, and you can say it better, but something like home or like people I've known or people that I love. And I feel like that completely changed my world and shift my, shifted my perspective because it's the first time I thought like, oh, wow, like I, I didn't realize how much I was missing and how much I hadn't seen. And so I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And I, you're welcome to comment on that, but I kind of want to, yeah, you're looking well, like, do you want to say something? Well, yeah, well, no, I think what it, what it illustrated to me when, when you had given your response because you're a very strong, independent, uh, self-assured woman, and this character wasn't right because of her life experiences, and you know, um, you know, her being dependent on him, and and you know, her kind of catching flack from you know both sides of the family, and her feeling just like kind of lost and not able to really, you know, kind of muster the strength that she needed to really handle that situation well. Whereas for Ashley. Uh, certainly things would have been much different, right? Mm. And so I think that was kind of the the disconnect, if you will, that you had to that character. And I just brought my perspective. Again, that's what we always bring to relationships and conversations and interactions are varying perspectives. And so I was able to kind of see, um, you know, see it from a different from a different angle, if you will, and just show you, you know, that um, that I didn't feel she was necessarily weak. I just you know, felt like she was kind of, you know, mired in, in struggle and had been her whole life. And this was kind of the norm and she was doing the best she could, yeah. you know, to get through that as best she could. And um, so it's just, it's, it's, it's just added perspective. And I think mm-hmm. just from a, uh, you know, from a human standpoint, if you will, you know, we ought to always be open to different perspectives and hearing other people's points of views and their experiences that have shaped them and, you know, given them their worldviews and, and things like that. And, and, and we stand to learn a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that, Oh, because I added some perspective to this character that your uh, take on her was wrong. Right. But you were interpreting her through the lens of Ashley Ashley's life mm-hmm. and how you would have, navigated that situation and you know so that's I mean that's it it's just it's just varying perspectives but I think they're all um equally valuable and important and should be heard yeah and you're you're being very sweet and generous to me but I think when you said that she was feeling lost in certain ways or just like the struggle and I 
that actually brought it closer for me. It was for the first time that I was able to like look at her and see her in a new way and see the places in my life where I feel lost or like sort of check my privilege or why my situation felt different or why her struggle felt exhausting to me. Uh, because it was, it, it, <laughs> I don't know. So I just really appreciate you for just bringing me closer to things that I wouldn't have seen. And that's what friendship is. And that's why when I first wrote that letter to you and just thought this was going to be sort of like an exchange, you'd answer some questions and I'd be grateful and we'd sort of move on. But instead we've developed a friendship that in any relationship, it just changes you and it opens you and connects you. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Absolutely. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, we come from completely different backgrounds. Uh, you know, paths would have never crossed, you know, otherwise. Uh, you know, were not for the circumstance that I was in and that you were embarking on and things like that. But I mean, there's just so much, so much to be gained from, um, you know, meeting and interacting and again, opening yourself up to get to know someone that's totally different from you. And I say totally different just in the sense of the background stuff, right? Yeah. But you come together and you find there's so much commonality yeah. between the two people, regardless of where you grew up, how you grew up, socioeconomic status, you know, even even political persuasions. There's still a lot of overlap, you know, of interests and things you find, you know, important and valuable and things like that. So it's it's just I'll say that you know, prison was not fun. Mm. Uh, prison was not easy necessarily, but I am eternally eternally grateful for all the connections that I've made from people just from across the board, uh, ranging from 20 years old to 75 years old, you know, and every, every you know, hue and, and every nationality you can think of almost, and just what they've all added to my life, you know, in varying ways. And it's just enriched me as a person, it's given me such a broader perspective on people and humanity and, um, you know, just our shared sense of, 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 of humanity you know, and how important that is and that we need not lose perspective of that. Even when we have very, um, you know, uh, heated, spirited debates about, you know, political differences or, or, or whatever the case, just understanding that we're all human and that we all, you know, kind of need each other, honestly. Mm -hmm. And prison really showed me that through the bonds that I made, the connections that I made with people over the years. So um, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Let me just say that. We, we do need each other. And I think it's lost or sometimes forgotten that we're all connected. Um, and I think friendship or leaning into people who might at first seem different from you and finding that they're not is one of those, like um, when that remembered sense of connection sort of flares up and, and sort of we, we can hopefully carry on that, that memory with us through each day. Um, and I could talk about our friendship for a long time, but I'm, I'm going to purposely limit myself here. <laughs> um, so we're going to circle back to you. And I want to take it backwards, as I often do in some of these podcasts, to go to your beginnings and try to understand a little bit of your foundations. So can you tell me where you grew up, what life was like as you were growing up? For sure. So I grew up in Northeast Portland. And let me just say, 17 and a half years later, it looks entirely different than it did when I went in. So it was, it was, you know, it was the hood. Uh, you know, there was prostitution and drive-bys and, you know, crack being sold. And I mean, typical, typical ghetto, if you will. Um, but I felt pretty insulated from that growing up because I had mom and dad in the same household and, you know, siblings and, you know, dad was, uh, he was a, a, you know, 
worked at the shipyard and worked at Freightliner. So very, you know, working with his hands, very blue collar. Uh, mom was, was, was ill most of our lives and couldn't work, but she took care of the household and took care of the kids in a very traditional sense. And, um, you know, she would read books to us at night before we went to bed and dad would get, you know, I have a twin brother, so he would, you know, get us in the little league sports and wrestling and pop Warner football. And so, you know, it was a very enriched family environment. Right. I never felt a lack of love or any abandonment or anything like that. I knew very much that I was loved and I was supported and taken care of. And but as I got older, I would say around 13, 14, because I was always a really shy kid. And my friends were all talking to girls and, you know, mm -hmm. doing what teenage boys do when they're chasing girls everywhere. And that just wasn't me. I wanted to be that way. But my shyness just totally made that uh, nearly impossible for me. And so I'm thinking, well, how can I, like every kid, how can I be accepted? How can I belong? How can I fit in and, you know, not be this social outcast? And so, um, like most kids do, we kind of experimented with alcohol and cigarettes and that sort of thing. But when I, when I had my first drink of alcohol, you know, it was, um, it was very, very powerful. It was a very powerful experience because I was able, like the, the shyness totally fell away. Like that guy was like, during that intoxication, he was not to be found. I was laughing and joking and, you know, uh, you know, making small talk and probably making a fool of myself, I'm sure, but it didn't matter because at least I could come out of my shell and I could talk to girls and talk to people and be comfortable. And so um, that was kind of where that uh, dependency developed for me. So, you know, time went on. Uh, my friends and I were not into some good stuff. We started to steal cars and skip school. And, you know, I was always in artistry. So I made sure that, and I was in advanced art for three of the four years in high school. And I made sure even if I skipped every other class that I was in art class, mm -hmm. because that was, that was my sanctuary, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that was the first, you know, freshman and sophomore years. Uh, at this point, you know, Mom and dad, dad was still working swing shifts. So he was gone all day. Mom's health started to deteriorate. So she couldn't physically do much. And we were just running the streets, you know, my friends and I, and um, getting into all sorts of stuff. And so junior year, I kind of started thinking about college. I was like, okay, well, I can't just keep living like this. I had been arrested a few times, been on probation and things like that, drinking, you know, picked up. But I was like, I do want to graduate. I would like to go to college and kind of do something with myself. So I started going to night school and things like that, making up some credits that had been lost during those first couple of years. Long story short, I fell about a credit and a half shy of graduating high school. Um, I had gotten a girl pregnant and had a son when I was 17, uh, which was way too much for me to handle. And so my drinking picked up even more. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, 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 I was a full-blown alcoholic. I mean, I went to work, sure, but as soon as I came home, I was getting drunk and I stayed drunk all day and all night. And um, so I don't know how far you want me to go into the incarceration is going to start shortly thereafter. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I'll, I'll pause for a second. I guess I have a, a couple of questions. Um, when you described like always showing up to your art class, was that a space where you felt like you could, where you belonged, where you could just be who you are without masks? Well, for sure, um, because that was that was my passion, and that was who that was who Martin was 
before the alcohol and before this need to belong to a, a peer group. And like that was, that, and I learned that I'll say from my mother, she was a, a very great artist. She did a lot of still life, you know, um, portraits and things like that. So, and I was a mama's boy. So I was always around my mom and, you know, we would have great conversations. Even when I was like 15 years old, she's talking to me about adult life things, mm -hmm. right? Things that, she, that I would have thought she would have talked to my sisters. I have two older sisters that she would have been talking to them about, but she was talking to me about because I was, she was just comfortable with me and I was very comfortable with her. And so, you know, I'm drinking coffee at 15 and having, you know, adult like <laughs> conversations with my mom. And uh, so that's where I developed my artistry from. And that was my sanctuary. And I'll say there was also a period in there, Ashley, where, you know, my identity was was really a struggle for me because I, I did all these things that totally went against the way I was raised to be accepted by my peer group. But also, you know, I knew I wanted to be more and I wanted to I wanted to have more in life. And I saw that when I would go to work and my uh all of my peers at work were white and but they were 16 they were driving you know cars and you know uh they came from better neighborhoods and i wanted that and so i tried to again doing what i could to be accepted so i would change the way i would speak i would change the way i would dress i turned in all my baggy you know uh, gangster clothes if you will for like you know button up polos and at that time you know corduroy pants and stuff like that so that when we hung out i could look like them mm. and i could and so it was this constant juxtaposition between fitting in in this world with you know my homies from the hood and then also being accepted in a predominantly white world you know middle class world that i eventually wanted to uh, be a part of and that also just it just tore at me. And the only escape I felt at the time was alcohol. Mm. And so alcohol was my best friend. I mean, it was literally my go to, you know, every single day just to help me to. I wouldn't say navigate those struggles, but just to kind of, you know, block them out, mm. if you will. So the art, the art and the alcohol, again, very opposite, you know, kind of uh you know influential things but you know they were they were what made me comfortable in my own skin mm. so and i feel like you were essentially trying to contort yourself no matter what environment you're in so there's never this true sense of like you are welcomed as you are you are invited as you are you are enough as you are and so when you said earlier like at 17 sort of being like a full-blown alcoholic I, it's so sad to me because i'm like oh i hear 17 and i think oh he's a baby like you you were a child yeah. Um, and yet you were carrying so much of this and trying to figure out who you were. And I guess perhaps not feeling, knowing where to take it or what supports to have that, you know, this is a like the world of an adult is placed on your shoulders as a child. Right. And, you know, the, the sad thing is I know that I could have turned to my mom. I could have turned, my dad wasn't the greatest communicator. You know, he kind of just showed his love by, you know, supporting the family, you know, financially and things like right. that. Um, boy, he spent time with us a lot, but he wasn't that emotional outlet you could go to. But I knew I could go to my mom with that. Um, and I didn't. I just I just because honestly, Ashley, like I was embarrassed. Right. I was embarrassed that I wanted to be like my white friends that I mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, because then what does that say about where I grew up? Well, it says that this is not enough. Right. And then mom, dad, I know you tried as hard as you can. You've given us you know, uh, uh, the greatest birthdays and Christmases and holidays and really created this 
close-knit family bond and yet that's not good enough because I want what these people have over here. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't feel that, 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 um, you know, that it was appropriate, if you will, for me to go to anyone with my struggles. Mm. And so I just kept it, I just kept it within me. And I, I did feel like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. Um, as I navigated that identity, uh, you know, crisis. So. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. And I don't think it's a, a condemnation on anyone or your mother or your family like clearly you were you felt loved and, and supported and, and they were there to support you but i think at at 15 16 17 especially as a, a boy or a man like you're not taught to have that outlet to express it and also you were seeing a lot of i think there are, there's a racial struggle in there too because these white people just having access to things that you felt like you had to change who you were in order to have the same level of access that perhaps just came easily to them, which sort of brings us back to that book, but you know, <laughs> in your actual life. 100%. Um, because so I first got my, it was my first experience with um, going to a predominantly white neighborhood. I was about 10 years old. And again, because my dad had my brother and I enrolled in a lot of things. And I think he did that as a way to keep us from the streets and the influences of the streets as we got older. So for instance, he, he, he enrolled us in Cub Scouts. And our, our den meetings were, um, you know, run by a white family, a guy, uh, one of the kids we went to school with, his dad, you know, was um, the den leader. So we would go to their house every Tuesday or whatever it was. And it was, uh, it was like a whole new world. It was only 15 minutes away, but it was an entirely new world. I mean, I'm looking at manicured lawns and there's no trash in the street. Like really people live like this, like clean streets and, you know, manicured lawns and, you know, you walk into the house and it just smells refreshing. And, and I was like, oh my goodness, like I never wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. And so in my little 10 year old mind, I'm thinking all white people live like this because they're better and they're deserving. Mm -hmm. And all black people live the way I live because we're not deserving and we're not worthy. And like, we're meant to live like this, right? That's the, that's the sense that I made of it back then. But that wasn't acceptable for me because I'm like, well, well, why? Like, why should I have to settle for less, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I go to school with this kid. We're in the same class. Why, why can I live like that? And so that was kind of where that seed was planted. And it just, it just, um, it just kind of got worse and worse the older I got because, you know, now these kids are driving, you know, Acuras to school and I'm catching the city bus with all my, you know, uh, friends. And it was just two different worlds. And I, I just, I just wasn't okay with accepting my, my world. Mm. Oh, that's, that breaks my heart a little, that the sense of seeing the things that these white kids and white families have and you internalizing a sense of like, oh, maybe because they're better. Like wh why else do they have access? And you also question that realizing like that doesn't make sense. And yet how could you not internalize that in terms of your worth? Uh, and so I know, and I'm just gonna sort of, and you can add in anything along here, but move us along a little in the story. I know you sort of get involved in the system a little bit. And by the time we reach New Year's Eve of 2003, um, obviously you were still drinking and, and just still, I guess, struggling in that way. Can you talk about how that night changed things? Yeah. So, um, so let me, I'll back up a little bit. So at, at 19, uh, several friends of mine and myself, uh, went to prison for a robbery, uh, that we had committed. And so I did, I did three years 
and I got my GED and, you know, I was going to church every week and, um, you know, just really wanted to change my life and get out and do well. And so I got out and I was 22 years old and I was, you know, again, continue. I was staying with church and I was working a job and, um, you know, I enrolled myself into community college and that was all good. But at that time, uh, some of my other buddies who, who hadn't gone to prison, they were going to the clubs and, you know, just going out and having a good time. And I felt like I was missing out. I'm like, yeah, I want to be good and I want to abstain from alcohol and, and, you know, substances and stay at home and like do what I'm supposed to do. But like, I'm 22 years old, right. like any normal 22, 22 year old is supposed to be in the club and, you know, living life and, you know, whatever. So I started with that thinking that I could go around these people and do those things, but not go all the way. Mm -hmm. Right. I go to the club and I don't have to have a drink or, you know, I could be around them, but I don't have to smoke marijuana and kidding myself and thinking that I'm going to hang around these people every day, but not do the things that they're doing. Right. That was mistake number one. And I think the further I was out of prison, the more complacent I became because I forgot what it felt like to be in prison during that three year mm -hmm. time. And I also lied to myself and told myself, okay, I can drink because I'm going to school. I'm maintaining a job. I'm paying my bills. I got in the car. I saved up $5,000 in six months and I got a car and, you know, I have my license and I paid insurance. And so I'm telling myself, I'm taking care of all these responsibilities. It's okay if I drink, right? right? It's okay if I drink. So that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. So I continued that way for the uh, next 19 months drinking and driving on a daily basis. Um, and we lead into December 31st of 2003. Uh, the day started off normally like any other day. I was staying with my girlfriend in Vancouver, Washington at the time. I worked in Portland. So I kissed her goodbye about 6.30 that morning and got in my car, headed to work. We got off work at about 11.30 that morning. And my brother uh, at the time lived in this house that I'm currently in today, the, the house that we grew up in. And so I come over here and we hang out and we make plans for the evening. I'm drinking this whole time, by the way. I drank a, a, a fifth of, of gin, um, some cheap liquor, went back to the store. I bought some more uh, cans of beer, just doing what I did on a, on a regular basis, just drank and drank and drank. And anyway, so we hooked up with another friend that night. It's about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at this time. We go to a house party that one of our high school buddies former high school buddies was uh, throwing and we have a good time. I'm belligerently drunk, but again, what's new, right? This is what we did on a regular basis. Uh, because prior to this, actually, I had never had a speeding ticket. I had never mm. been pulled over. I could have certainly been pulled over every day and gotten a DUI, but I didn't. And so, um, you know, we bring in the new year. Uh, it's about 1230. Uh, my brother and my friend and I get into my vehicle um, no one asked about taking my keys or tried to take my keys because this was just part of the course, sadly. And so we get into my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident, uh, get back onto the freeway to take my brother home so that I could drive out to my house in Vancouver, which was about 20, 25 minutes away from my brother's house. So we get to the end of this block here and my brother realizes he doesn't have any cigarettes. So he says, let's go get some cigarettes. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm exhausted. I've been drinking all day. I barely eaten. I just want to get home and go to sleep. So 
we continue to, to, to go up the street. We get about two blocks up the road. And then two blocks from that point, there's an intersection. I see the light is clearly yellow. I knew I wasn't going to make the light. But it didn't matter because my sole focus was to get these cigarettes, get him home so I could drive home. So I immediately punched the gas. I'm literally tunnel vision. I'm not looking left, right. I'm straight forward. And I accelerated quickly. I was in a newer uh, model Acura full-size uh, sedan. And I just quickly accelerate. And literally within, I don't know, three or four seconds, just the, I mean, the impact was just, you know, indescribable. And I never saw the car. They were waiting in the intersection. And I just plowed right into them and T-boned them. And, you know, of course, my airbags deploy and, you know, my car comes to a slow winding halt. And my first thought was to look at my brother and see if he's OK. And he appeared to be OK. And I'm kind of, you know, realizing, OK, well, I'm not dead, so I'm still here. So I kind of come to, if you will, and I get out my car and I'm walking around my vehicle and assessing the damage on my car because I was so superficial. The only thing I cared about at that point was my car being totaled. And then my brother had pointed out that um, someone was on the pavement and they were not moving. And then it, it instantly dawns on me, you know, the, the, the magnitude of what I had just done. Yeah. And of course, within seconds, you know, sirens, lights, you know, fire trucks, police are coming from all angles. And um, so that was, that was, that was definitely the worst night of, my life, but forget my life. I, it, it was, it changed the lives of, of, of families, you know, three families uh, forever, you know, as, as two people perished that night and another passenger was permanently disabled um, due to that crash. And so, yeah, that was, that was, um, that was horrific. I'm grateful that you shared because you you don't have to and I know or I imagine that going over that and I know you do this a lot and you do a lot of speaking um but it's still probably not an easy thing to say and so I don't take that lightly that you're you're sharing um right. and I know that night changed lots of things for lots of reasons including your traject trajectory and your purpose though because can you talk about the two people who died what sort of work they were doing or how they they were involved with people in recovery. Right. So after this happened, I'm obviously booked in, in the county jail and I'm just kind of sitting on my bunk and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone has slid the Oregonian uh, newspaper underneath my door. And I, I, I don't know why they, I didn't ask anybody to see a newspaper. I just, you know, so I'm thinking, well, let me see what's in this paper. So I kind of thumb through it and I get to the um, the metro section um, and I see my picture right there on the front page of the metro section. And I begin to read the, the article and it was detailing the lives that these people were living until the night that this crash happened. And it was so ironic because I learned that they were actually on their way home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party that that night because they had also struggled with addiction and they had turned their lives around and they were in recovery. They were active members of the recovery community. They were actually volunteers for the MAD organization, Mothers mm -hmm. Against Drunk Driving. And so the columnist, he was talking about kind of how very much how ironic that was that these people had, you know, given their lives to helping 
other people get clean and sober. I know one of the women uh, who perished that night, she would watch women's children so that women could go to AA and NA meetings, right? That was part of her um, her service to others, if you will. And so they had totally dedicated their lives and yet they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was what that columnist said at the very end of the article that absolutely changed my life forever and the direction I would say that I was going to take my life in. And he said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. Mm. End quote. And um, now I got to be honest, I was 24 years old at the time. And I knew because of the laws in Oregon that I was looking at at a minimum 10 years day for day. That's no good time. No, be, no time off for, you know, good behavior or working a program or going day for day, I was going to do 120 months flat at minimum. Right. And so I couldn't, I couldn't fully wrap my head around how this situation was supposed to help me, but I knew that there was something to what he had said. And so I made that my focal point for the next, cause I was in the County for a year, you know, kind of, you know, going through the pretrial, you know, hearings and things like that. But I was focused on how I was supposed to manifest that statement in my life. And so I did a lot of meditation. I did a lot of seeking, uh, you know, answers from, you know, trusted spiritual people. And, um, and then it came to me, it came to me that the only way this situation will not be in vain is if I do everything I possibly can to ensure that this never happens again, Mm. that another family, no family has to suffer uh, this tragedy again. And so I just, I didn't know what that was going to look like. I didn't know what educational pursuits would, would come of that. Um, what was needed to even, you know, make this happen. But I knew, I knew that that was the, the, the center of my life was supposed to revolve around that. Mm. Right. And so that became, that became my focus. When you say you knew, like you, after speaking to spiritual leaders or seeking that sort of guidance and doing your own searching, what is that feeling like of that, of that knowing? Is it the sense of release or relief or is it something deeper within in your body? What, is, what does that feel like? Right. So when I finally had come across that, that revelation and that conviction, it was very um, comforting. It was some solace in a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. Mm. Right. If, if there was any solace to be had, it came in that because now I I didn't just have to sit every day with the guilt and the shame of, you know, taking two people, two innocent people from this world prematurely and then injuring another guy. I could also now put my energy into how can I make amends? How can I make this right? How can I make my life is or I'm sorry, how can I make my life? be, um, you know, a, 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 a symbol of my, you know, kind of atonement for what I had done, you know, if there is any atonement to be had. And so that was energizing for me. And it was, it was, um, it provided a sense of relief that this situation didn't have to just end with the tragedy that happened on December 1st or 31st of 2003, right? There could be another chapter to be written and there will be mm. another chapter this is going to be written if I have anything to say about it. And I had a lot to say about it. And so, um, 
you know, I can now look back on it and I know we'll kind of go through um, the process. But now looking back on it, I, I just, you know, it's, it's amazing that I remember when this all started, when that seed was planted within me and the path that I took to get to where I am today and, and seeing everything manifest the way that it has. I'm just really, really, really grateful, um, you know, and, and humble. Mm. You know, I'm humble that, that I was able to find my direction in life, find my purpose and, 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 and my passion and to be able to, to pursue it as vigorously as I am. So I think that's really powerful when you say you realize there was another chapter. I was listening to music by a formerly incarcerated artist, uh, Maserati E, and he has a song that he wrote. Oh, gosh, I forget the name of it. And so now it's uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to try to guess. <laughs> but at some point during the song, he, keep, he has this one refrain where he keeps repeating something like it ain't over for me yet, like realizing while he's inside, despite everything that has happened or everything that he might have done or any harm that he might have caused that it ain't over for me yet. And I feel like right. as you're speaking, you're talking about this chapter of this almost resurrection out of, like you said, a, a horrible and situation, but um, that, that to me, that's accountability and that's atonement and that's healing. And that when we heal in community, because this wasn't just like a personal thing, you were connecting to the people who were harmed by your actions and also wanting to pay it forward to the community at large. And I feel like that's the only space for healing. Like we, we can't heal in isolation. Right, exactly. Well, you, okay, so you figure what I did, Ashley, is I destroyed uh, families that day. I destroyed, uh, you know, I took something from the recovery from the recovery community that they will never be able to replace. These were beautiful human beings who were doing God's work is how I see it. And I and I I took that away. And so if I was the cause of such destruction in a community, in my community, then it's now incumbent upon me to try to bring some healing to the community. Mm -hmm. So, how, I mean, there's no way that could be done in isolation, right? That's right. an oxymoron. I mean, I'm an individual, but if I'm looking to heal, you know, um, a community or parts of a community, then I have to, then I have to be involved with the community. My work has to expand beyond me, right? Mm -hmm. And so the process was never about me. It was about how can I do the most that I can do to affect as many people as I possibly can to make my community safer so that others don't have to experience what I cause here. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, and then if I, if I can just double back to, you know, my identity and that crisis and me. So it got to the point when I was in my addiction, you know, everything, like all I care about was the superficial, you know, what kind of clothes I wore and what kind of car I drove in the type of women I was around and all those status symbols, right? That's what mattered to me. And, you know, even though I acquired a few things and I had a nice car and things like that, it was never like, it, it was, it never satiated me. Mm -hmm. I was never content, fully content with what I had. And so I'll say, you know, getting to, uh, you know, this kind of purpose-driven life that I embarked on during that first year of my incarceration you know, it really brought into focus who I was supposed to be, mm. what my true identity was supposed to develop into, right? And it's it's the total opposite of what I was seeking before, where I'm trying to grab as much as I could yeah. grab and hold on to it. Now it's like, no, you need to give away what you have, 
give away who you are, share yourself with other people and be of service to other people. The focal point can't be about me. That's always going to leave me wanting and needing more, right? That's never going to fulfill me. There may be fleeting moments of joy or excitement or thrill, but it's not sustainable joy and fulfillment and, you know, and purpose, Mm -hmm. Right. And so it was I learned that it was just the opposite is what needed to have needed to happen in order for me to become fulfilled and to be filled up inside and to be validated and to feel important and to, you know, all those things that I was seeking uh, previously, but going about it the wrong way. And so, again, I mean, the experience is just, you know, it's immeasurable. I can't even fully qualify or or, or quantify, um, you know, what it's meant to me to to have gone through what I went through to get to get here. Mm. And as you do that work to repair what you can repair and really transform it, I feel like not only does it transform the community outside, but it clearly it was refining you to come back to who you are and like that external stuff that was not who you are, that's not a measure of your actual worth and who Martin is sort of falls away. And so now, you know, all those years later, I got to meet the man who like, I don't recognize that young version of yourself. And we were, we were talking about that on the phone the Thank other goodness. day. Yeah, 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 because you, you know, who you, your essence comes through now. I get to see you. I get to see how you are in community. Um, and so I actually want to ask you about that. So what are, what were some of the steps that you took over those 17 years to bring this vision that you had after your first year incarcerated, like to fruition and how did it sort of grow? Right. So, so I had the commitment to become a counselor because I knew that was the quickest, easiest way to be able to affect change in people who were struggling with alcoholism or addiction. Because it was a, a type of like drug counsel, like drug and addiction. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Be become a drug and alcohol counselor. So I knew I needed an education to do that. Um, so I got to the prison in January of 2005. Um, I became a tutor. And so that kind of got me in the educational environment. And then I learned through that, that I could do one class per term. They had a, a professor come from the community college, coming to the prison once a week. I could do this humanities and perspective class is what it was. And so I said, well, let me, let me get what I can get, right? It was 25 bucks. And so I enrolled in that. And then I was doing one class per term. And at the time, I didn't have any degree plan laid out. I didn't know. I just figured if I do enough classes, <laughs> at some point, they're going to give me a degree, right? That's kind of, <laughs> kind of the way it right. works, right? So, um, but now during that time, I had met an amazing woman uh, via a pen pal website. And she, you know, was, she was asking me, you know, kind of, well, how do you want to spend your time? You know, I had 16 years left. And she was like, you know, kind of what do you want to do? And I laid out this vision, um, you know, kind of a murky vision of wanting to do, you know, work with people and become a counselor. And she said, well, do you have a degree plan? Do you know? And I, I had nothing. And so she's one of those types of people where we hung up the phone. She spent the next, you know, four or five hours uh, researching online, you know, programs. And we eventually, because uh, we don't have internet access inside prison. And most of the programs were online, but there was a few that still dealt with mail correspondence. They would send you the course, you would order the book from Amazon, you know, you fill out the, uh, or you, uh, you know, create the assignments, you mail them back, they grade them, they send them back to you, you know, kind of very snail mail process, but it was all we had. And so I enrolled in uh, Indiana University, pursuing an associate's degree, 
Um, they were really expensive classes, so I couldn't do them that often, but we did one here, one there. Simultaneously, I'm doing the classes offered at the prison. So we did more research and we found cheaper colleges. Louisiana State University had a really good program for almost a uh, little less than half the price of Indiana University. Long story short, um, I ended up getting uh, my associates from Indiana in 2010. And then I got a certificate uh, in human services from Louisiana State uh, shortly thereafter. And, um, and then I continued on and got a bachelor's from uh, Colorado State, a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State. Again, all via correspondence, male correspondence. And then later, um, eventually getting a master's in psychology uh, from California Coast University. So um, it was, it was, it was, I think it was what, nine years total is what it was to get the match to, to get the master's degree, but none of it would have been possible without her. I mean, mm -hmm. just, she had to, you know, call each university and talk to the advisors and set up, you know, set everything up. And of course, making the payments. And um, so everything was, you know, privately funded because you can't get any federal funding if you're incarcerated for um, for educational purposes, uh, you know, beyond a GED. So again, it was like it was like the universe was conspiring, as you say, <laughs> the universe was conspiring to bring about this vision, this uh, purpose that I had that I had embarked on that I knew was supposed to uh, be my life. And, you know, again, I just I believe in divine intervention. I know that this was not coincidence that she was placed in my life um, and that these opportunities were uh, made available. And so it all happened for that reason. And so that's why I, I hold it very, you know, uh, uh, sacredly and, and, and honorably. And I want to I want to do well by it. Right. I want to do well by the people who have helped me, um, including you. And I just want to do I just want to be, um, you know, I want to be a good ambassador of this this calling this purpose you know what i'm what i'm what i'm meant to do and i, I just want to do well at it well i i won't give it away but i know who you're referring to so shout out to that beautiful woman who <laughs> yes <indeed. laughs> has supported you um I was, oh this is what i want to ask you so you had referenced you know the the universe conspiring and you and i have talked about this a lot about visioning because what is so inspiring and amazing to me about you is that throughout these 17 years or how many years you have this idea or this, like, you know who you're supposed to be in the world, you know your purpose. And you said you've lived this like purpose-driven life. And it's like, you see your future and see what's meant to be. And you almost like hold it into your space. Like you envision it, you embody it. What is that? What is that? I'm making up what I think it might be. What is that like visualization? What does that process look or feel like to you? Yeah. So if you think about Again, going back to the very wayward, um, you know, uh, alcohol dependent Martin who didn't know who he was or what life was supposed to look like. I also, quote unquote, accepted a vision for my life at that point. And that was that I'm not going to make it out the hood. I'm not going to have a, a good job and have a big house in, the, in a nice neighborhood. That's not for people like me, mm -hmm. right? So I had accepted that vision, if you will, for my life. And so if I'm reconstructing my life and I'm, I'm, I'm reimagining what my life is supposed to look like now, or I'll say while I was incarcerated, but looking at the future, 
you know, I had to put myself in these kind of imaginary settings to where I would feel comfortable, you know, if and when they come. And I firmly believe they will come. They've already started to come in, in, yeah. in some way. And so, you know, it was it was exciting. You know, I'm, I'm seeing myself wearing, you know, a shirt and a tie and some nice slacks and I'm on a, on, on a stage and I see, you know, an audience of a thousand people or 2000 people. And, you know, I hear these speakers and it's projecting my voice and, you know, I, like I, I see it and I feel it. And I would just walk around the track outside. I got my music in my ears and I'm listening to something that's uplifting. Right. And I would just go there. Like I would go there to that happy place, if you will, that, that, that magical place, if mm. you will. And, and I would just, I would just, you know, immerse myself in that vision and not just speaking to large audiences, but even doing one-on-one counseling with people in the community. Right. And just owning that space, that new space that was going to be my life. Right. And even envisioning myself going to the beach and having fun without alcohol, because that was entirely foreign. Right. And so just imagining all these different possibilities for my life and things that I I'm not going to say wanted to do, but things I knew I would do at some point and just kind of, you know, getting that 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 good euphoric feeling from those um, that would just carry me through my days in prison, uh, but also give me a whole lot to look forward to once I was out here. Mm. And so, like, there's nobody on planet Earth having you know, done that over and over and over again, there's nobody that can tell me that that's not going to be my life, that I won't be on those stages, that I won't be counseling these people, that I won't be making a difference in my community the way that I've envisioned for many, many years. I can't accept that, right? Mm-hmm. I cannot I cannot accept that. So it's uh, empowering, invigorating, exciting, energizing. Um, it's all of that. I feel like I need to put it on a post-it note on my desk. I can't accept that. Like the, the vision that, <laughs> that is not enough for you that you were settling for. Um, that's yeah. And I, I think, and I, I said this to you before, like in my own life, when I feel like, oh, there's, it's hard to be persistent or there are blocks or like, oh, like I feel like there's something in the way or how do I get to what I feel inside me? And you were doing all of this, like from inside prison, knowing you were going to be there for 17 years and staying committed and firm to it. I imagine you're human. And so there were moments where like, sometimes it got like, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit hard. What did you do in those moments? Like, <laughs> give me some advice. <laughs> well, again, so I had a tremendous support system around me. Right. And so even though I was incarcerated, I stay connected to people on the outside. Um, you know, as you know, I've, I've written, you know, a, a few blogs in my life. And so for me, writing, (laughs) writing is very cathartic. And so if I was having a moment, um, I would write or I would read or I would call somebody that was, you know, uh, willing to listen. And I would just, you know, vent. I would let it out and I would say, you know what, like, you know me, I don't wallow in self-pity or anything like that. But, you know, I'm having a moment where I'm feeling like, God, I can't believe I'm still here. It's been 13 years, right? It's been 15 years. Like, why am I still here? Right. But I also know that when I get into those head spaces, that's not healthy. 
Mm. Right. I'm human. So I'm going to have them, but I don't have to entertain them for mm. hours or days or right. I have some agency. I have a mm. choice over that. Right. And so I can either choose to stay in that very defeatist uh, mentality, or I can say, you know what? Yes, I'm still here. It may still suck, but there's still something positive I can do today. There's still something productive to be done. Right. And I can choose to do that. I can choose to transfer that energy into that. Right. Because we all have energy throughout the day that we get to choose what we want to expend it on. Yeah. And so I chose to rapidly change that energy focus into something that was more productive. And yeah, I didn't have to go off and, you know, go save the world that day. But if I wanted to put it into a blog or, you know, put it into reading a book that was, you know, uh, soothing or just relaxing, right, then I could do that. And so, but I chose not to stay in that, in that kind of negative energy space. Mm. Um, but again, having people there to listen and um, knowing that that's why we need people to be able to get that kind of toxicity out of us at times, you know, I, I utilize that, you know, and I'm grateful for that. I could not have gotten through my time um, as smoothly, I would say, as I did, had I not had that tremendous support group mm. and, um, you know, I developed a passion for writing while I was in. So I went from visual art, uh, drawing and painting and stuff like that to, you know, written art, if you will, mm -hmm. while I was inside. Uh, but again, just discovering different layers and aspects of myself that I didn't allow to be discovered, you know, previously that I didn't allow to, to grow and, and, and cultivate. So, um, but yeah, all of that work to help me kind of get over that, that, that hump, if you will. I, I've been like smiling throughout this podcast. I know no one else can see me except you, but you just like, man, you're like the motivational speaker in you <laughs> is absolutely coming in. And just that, because uh, you have these nuggets of wisdom because you've lived them. This is not something that you're just making up or taking from books. Like you have experienced this, you know this in your being. And that's why I think it's so powerful, that sense of agency and, and the support system. I feel like I know for me, Anytime I've emerged from what feels like an inner darkness, it's always on the backs of community, always. Right. You know, that's, that's where it comes from. Um, I know I've taken up an hour of your time. Can I have like 10 more minutes? You can have as much as you need, young lady. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm like, oh, I'm not ready to let you go yet. Um, I guess I, I want to ask you, I do have a lightning round for you. You, I know you've listened to my podcast, so you're probably familiar that there's a lightning round at the end. I love it. <laughs> but Let's before, do it. Well, I, one second, before we get to that, I just want to know, so you've, you've been out for a month and you're already like, the things that you've envisioned, I, you've begun to even manifest here. What, what is next on the horizon? Like what, where are you headed next? So I've already been in contact with, uh, for, for instance, there's a, a trauma nurse team that's at the hospital uh, just a few blocks from where I live. And so um, so they, so let me just say they came, so I recorded my story and posted on posted it on YouTube uh, about three years ago, uh, talking about this night and the crash and, and, and you know, my dedication to this work, um, you know, in the aftermath of that. And so they came across my video when the pandemic started, they had to go, everybody had to go to online platforms mm -hmm for DUI victim impact panels. And so they came across this video. So they've been showing it to their panel and several other panels have, have gotten a hold of it as well. And um, 
And so they knew when I was getting out. So when I got out, we got in contact with each other. I visited them. Uh, they have a bunch of stuff for me to do. Uh, we're going to start with me uh, speaking at their victim impact panel. I'm going to record my video again professionally, and they will have free reign to use that. And then when we start back in person, I'll be speaking there. Um, the original panel that showed my video in Eugene, which is a couple hours away, I've met with them and I'll be speaking there next month, uh, August 19th. And then um, I have a guy that I met in Idaho uh, who also came across my video several months before I got out and asked for permission to use it. And then he said, you know, for the month of December, we're just drinking and driving awareness month. They do a lot of events around that. And he would love to bring me to Idaho, have me speak at high schools during the daytime and then speak uh, in the community in the evening. And he said, it's up to you, however many you want to do. You want to do four, six, eight, whatever. We will fund it. The state has a budget for that. We would gladly have you come in because you have a story that we, that we feel people need to hear. And so I'm just so honored and humbled to have, again, this network already, you know, kind of blossoming. Uh, they started, you know, before I got out and they're just fully embraced to me now that I'm out and want to help me get involved, you know, with speaking and, and, and you know, with, with the youth and, you know, drug and alcohol prevention programs and things like that. And this is all in conjunction with the nine to five that I'm going to uh, get as a substance abuse counselor. Uh, I did get my certification in 2019. And so I've just started to embark on that process. I needed a few weeks to just acclimate to society. A lot has changed out here. Uh, yeah, give yourself first... that grace. I don't think anyone expects you to have like, been, like walked out and be like, oh, you've got that job. And like that. <laughs> right, right. And thankfully, my, my, my parole officer is very, very understanding. And so again, I just feel supported from all angles, like literally from all angles, from friends and family and, you know, um, the community corrections and the professional, you know, fields and, um, so I'm working on my website right now. Again, a friend of mine who has a lot of knowledge in that is helping me with that. Uh, not even charging me a single dime for it, which is just, I mean, I just couldn't ask for more support. So I'm really looking to get the speaking, um, engagement set up and, um, take every opportunity to get my message out there, you know, and not just about drinking and driving. I'll say just about the choices we make, especially when we're younger and, you know, we're feeling pressured from all sides, but just understanding the ramifications of those uh, uh, choices can be felt 20, 30 years down the road, right? From choices that you make when you're um, 14, 15, 16 years old. So just really want to um, hammer home that point. And so people understand that just making the next right choice is, is you know, is the best choice, mm. you know. I'm excited for the day when not only do I get to fly out to see you and spend time with you, but also when I get to like be in the audience with you up on stage like that. Oh, I well, and, so and us on the same stage together, right? Don't, I mean, I would love that. that so, okay. <laughs> we will also be on the same stage together for sure. Yes, but it would be will. like such a privilege and an honor to just see you center stage and just doing your thing. And I know it's going to happen because you've envisioned it. I, I've envisioned it. I appreciate <laughs> You put in the work. Um, all right. So are you going to put your game face on? You ready for a lightning round? Let's do it. I'm <laughs> as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> the problem is like, I feel like I don't ask questions that are actually lightning-ish, but whatever. 
Um, <laughs> we'll try to have fun with it. So you mentioned lobster before, but is there like a best meal that you've had since you've been home? The best meal I've had, it was at a restaurant on the coast. It's called Kylo's and like the, the fried shrimp and the crusted Parmesan halibut. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, asparagus, asparagus. Mm -hmm. I never had asparagus and I'm eating asparagus with every meal. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the best kept secret. Like, but I guess not. <laughs> I think a lot of people eat asparagus. But I had not, but yeah, that meal at Kylo's was superb. I love I, if people can see your face right now when you got into the meal, you like got all like smiley and you're like, oh, yeah, so oh, it's, 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 it's all about the food. It is all about the food. <laughs> let me tell you. And you've had some good choices. Yeah. Wow. OK, um, this is a separate question. Who who inspires you or in this moment? Is there someone that's sort of motivating you or, or throughout your time when you're in prison, an author or anyone? Uh, Brian Stevenson. If I oh, had to name a person, Brian Stevenson is an angel. That that man is incredibly, incredibly inspiring and motivating, and just makes you want to get involved. Mm. He just makes you want to get in. Like you cannot read his book or see, you know, his work and his movie and not want to get out and do something to help people who need it. Yeah. Right. So Brian Stevenson comes to mind. Um, I hope to have the honor of meeting him someday, but if not, you know, he'll always be kind of who I'm looking to, to, to draw inspiration from for sure. Well, we're, put, we're putting that out in the universe also that you'll get to meet him. Let's do it. I don't know if you know this, but the reason you said like Brian Stevenson makes you want to like get involved. His was the book that I read that made me first realize, oh my gosh, this is what's happening in prisons. And that's why I started this whole journey. So that, wow. yeah, so that book has a special place in my heart and it absolutely does motivate people to uh, do things that they never imagined they'd be doing. Um, the universe conspires. Yes, yeah. So actually my my first ever guest on the show, David Garlock, he, uh, Brian Stevenson at one point became his uh, lawyer. And oh, okay. so he, and now he's done work with him and he knows him. And so when David like talks to me about Brian Stevenson or Brian to him, I'm always like, oh my God, this is like my version of a celebrity. So. <laughs> um, okay. So actually we got to put you in connection with David so you can meet Brian, but that sounds I great. Note. <laughs> yes. um, oh, so, so far is life outside of prison's walls, what you'd imagine it was going to be. It is absolutely everything that I imagined and and more. And, um, you know, again, just everything that I envisioned when I thought about being free, uh, being able to wake up in a bed that's bigger than my body, right? One I could kind of sprawl out on and being able to go down to a kitchen and make some freshly brewed coffee, like all of those things that I just was so eager to have, they are they are they are fulfilling that you know that vision that I had and how euphoric it made me feel and it feels euphoric every morning that I wake up I'm grateful to be in this bed I'm grateful to be able to walk outside and smell the air and hear the birds chirping it's it's, it's just been a delight it's really been a delight uh, this is not a lightning question because it just came to me now but so you're back in the home that you grew up in right, right. How, do, how does that feel to be in a different space in your life and different headspace and be back there Right. So I, I, there was a little trepidation coming in because, I, you know, I lost my parents while I was incarcerated. And so obviously I knew they weren't going to be here and I'm actually in their room. Mm. Right. So I'm in their room and I didn't know how I would feel about that. 
But because my brother and his wife have totally remodeled and changed everything in the house, those cues that maybe would have triggered memories of them are not there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, there's pictures around, but I don't see my mom sitting on the same couch that, that she used to sit on and read her book. You know what I mean? So thankfully that didn't happen. And even though I'm in their room, again, it's an entirely different room um, aesthetically. So it's, um, you know, it, it feels it, it feels great. It feels, you know, I'm not the kid that grew up here. I'm an entirely different person, but this is home, mm. right? This is home. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to borrow a little bit from Virginia Woolf, who's one of my favorite writers. And she talks about, about women, but in her time having a room of their own and how important that was. What does it feel like to you to have a room of your own now? Um, it feels liberating. Mm. It feels liberating and it feels it, it feels like I am human again. Mm. Because when you're in a cell, right, that cell is your bathroom as well. Right. Um, it's it's I mean, you're sharing a space with another human being. And you can never like, right. You, you come to your room, you shut the door, you have total peace. You shut the door and you well, you don't shut it. They shut the door for you in, mm-hmm. in prison, but you're very, very rarely in there alone. Mm-hmm. And so you never just have like that total peace. Yeah. Right. And so now I just feel liberated. I feel like I, I, I have, the ability, you know, to get away from everybody and block everything out and come here and just be in peace. Mm. And um, it feels, it feels awesome. Uh, I love hearing that on a light note, a fun note. I know you've been watching some like sports games with your brother. Uh, is there, I don't even know what sport, I guess baseball is happening now. Uh, it, it was, it was the NBA finals, but <laughs> okay, so, all right, so what, what team are we rooting for? And by we, I mean you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I was going for the Phoenix Suns cause I love Chris Paul. Uh, you know, he's a, he, he's a pros pro and I just wanted to see him get it done. But, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks had other plans. So, but again, it was just it was just really um, wonderful to to be sitting with my brother, you know, eating a nice meal, watching the game. You know what I mean? I didn't yeah. have to call him on the phone and talk about it over the phone. You know, afterwards, I was able to actually sit and enjoy it with him. Mm. I mean, just it was just incredible. Just incredible. Uh, I love that. Um, I'm. Okay, I, I think I'm going to ask this. I, I, we can always cut it out if I. <laughs> I don't want to like center myself in it, but I do feel like I want to talk just briefly. I have two questions for you, and then we're done. Because <laughs> uh, you have been such an important part of my life, and I'm so grateful. And I, I hope and imagine this will be a lifelong friendship. Uh, I wanted to, t- yeah, I wanted to take a couple of moments, and I know I kind of got to think about it in advance. But if we could just take like three words to describe each other um so I have to describe you in three words and you have to describe me um since since I guess it's actually you know (laughs) I'm like should I put you on the spot I mean I know I've got to think about this I feel like we should end with a focus on you so actually you you get to go first you have to pick three words to describe me (laughs) um so I'm gonna say fire oh okay yeah (laughs) I'm gonna say I'm going to say dynamic. 
And I'm going to say refreshing. Oh, <laughs> those are the, I, as I always tell you, I feel very seen by you and that's a blessing of our friendship and just who you are. So I'm grateful to get to receive those. And, and when it comes from someone you care about, it just feels extra affirming. Um, I'm getting to cheat because I had written some of these things beforehand when I, <laughs> I was going to ask you this question. Um, and the first word I, cause there were so many, but the first word that I wrote down was honoring to yourself, to those you love. I feel honored by you. You're honoring to the collective. And it just ties back into like how you see me. And I imagine I'm not the only person in your life who has that experience that other people feel seen by you. Thank you. You're welcome. The other thing I thought is like steadfast, like you're persistent, this determination, um, which we've talked about in this episode. And then faithful. And it doesn't have to mean in like a religious way, but again, faithful to you, faithful to your beliefs, faithful to your purpose, faithful to the people, like loyal, like faithful to the people around you. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a good friend, you're present, uh, you're fun. I mean, there's lots of things I could add on there, but. Um, Thank you so fun. much. Yeah. I, and to hear that, um, you know, from you, somebody I deeply respect, I deeply enjoy, and I feel, you know, there's been a privilege having gotten to know you, but that validates me because it also just reaffirms that I'm not the same guy from 20 years ago, 25 years ago, because I was not faithful to myself. It was all about trying to appease other people and give them what they wanted and have them, you know, look at me and, and, and marvel at what I had, right? It was never about me and being true to my core self. And so that was just really, really reaffirming. And the fact that you say I'm steadfast um, also validates uh, you know, my seriousness to this mission and this calling and purpose in my life. And so I just, I just thank you for, um, for recognizing those things and, um, you know, ascribing those things to me. Thank oh, you. Yeah, of course. And I, I will add one more, as you were talking just more before you moved your arm and you have that little, like you're wearing a white shirt polo, but it's got like a little design on the sleeve, right? Like, I like it. Uh, so that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to add fashionable. So that's a new thing I, I didn't know about that. you. <laughs> are you are you aware of this designer? Do you know who that is? I have no idea, but I just like that there's the like the red and blue on the bottom of the white. Okay. It just looks cool. <laughs> the okay, side note. <laughs> um, okay, so the last one will get a little bit more serious. Uh, what are you most grateful for in this moment of your life? In this moment, I am grateful for people. Mm. Um, just the collectiveness of the people who have shown me support and that they want to help me to achieve this dream that I've laid out for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, hu humanity is beautiful, mm -hmm. you know? And again, we don't get to where we are in life without other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm really truly feeling that right now. I feel so loved. I feel so accepted. You know, a lot of people leaving prison, they feel that, you know, they're going to experience a lot of rejection and condemnation and there's a stigma because they're an ex-convict. Ashley, I, I don't know what world that is because I feel the total opposite right now. So I am just so, so grateful for just people's humanity and, um, you know, their acceptance of me and their willingness to help me um, be the best version of myself that I can possibly be. 
I'm so grateful for this conversation. You and I have been talking about this podcast conversation for like nearly a year now since I started doing these, these podcasts. And I kept saying like, you're going to be my favorite guest. I can't <laughs> wait to have you on. And I was, you know, when you first came out, I was just like, I don't want to pressure you, but <laughs> so I appreciate that. It's only been like, there. it hasn't even been, we haven't struck the actual month mark and right, you made right. it onto the show and, and made time for it. Um, and well, it, believe it was it was just as important for me to to do this, right? It wasn't just a one-sided, you know, eagerness. It was it was the feeling was mutual, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I appreciate uh, the fact that you gave me the space I needed to just kind of find my way for a few weeks. But yeah, we didn't we didn't need we didn't need to drag it out much longer. This was <laughs> this was vital. So, and I feel like it also allowed me to continue to see you in new ways. Like we've got to have an extended video conversation right now without like. Something like telling us you have five minutes left, you have 30 seconds exactly. left, or cutting you off in the middle of a sentence, or just getting to hear your story in fullness. Um, so thank you. Thank you for just being who you are. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking very important, relevant questions to my experience and uh, to my essence that allowed me to share who I am and um, you know my transformation and who I am today. And the things I want to do, the things that are important to me. So thank you so much for this platform. And um, yeah, just keep rocking it. You do an awesome job. <laughs> Same for you. Thank you. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in, talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes, stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I can to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky, but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows, my enemies cutting it close. I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything